Thanks for checking out the Lakeshore Podcast. If this is your first time listening with us, we want you to know God loves you. We want for your hope in Jesus to be renewed and for your faith to come to life. Wherever you are joining us from, we hope this message encourages you. So we've been talking about the fact that every single believer is called to witnessing. It's not optional for us. It's not something, well, that's just not my thing. No, it's all of our thing. In fact, it's part of the Great Commission. Even though none of us really signed up for it, and statistics say that most of us don't like to do it, and in fact, most of us just don't. But the point is that it's a really intricate part of God's big gospel plan, and it's an intricate part of our development. And so we went, and we've been leaning heavy on the fact that like other areas of our life, we're trusting the Lord for Jesus promised that he would get involved and he would make us become fishers of men from the inside out. Not as in force us to do something because of guilt or, you know, just, just direct command and we have to do it even when we don't like it. He would change us from the inside out. And he would show us how he wants to work with our personality and our temperament to be able to contribute to the growth of the kingdom, to people's lives, people being able to find Jesus. And uh, and we've been talking about that. So today we're going to wrap up. Today's title is Everyone's Waiting for Jesus. And like I told you, we're going to skip a rock through Luke chapter 3, and we're going, to get, we're going to look at four final truths, not like final in the whole study of this topic, but final in our, in our little series, four final truths that will help frame in a kingdom mindset as to how important it is to share the gospel. Because even if intellectually, you know, we, we're like, yeah, we know that, we know that, we know that, we, we don't know it down in our gut to the point that we're living it out. And, and we get caught up, man. Our mindset drifts, and it doesn't mean we don't love Jesus. It means we live busy lives, and there's a lot of things going on in the world, and a lot of things going on in our world, and, and we tend to get distracted. And so we're going to look at four truths that will reframe in a mindset for us. And I ask you to turn to Luke chapter 8. We're going to start. We're just going to look at one verse in verse 40 and bounce off of that. But let me give you a background of what's happened in Luke 1 uh, through 8, verse 8. Verses 1 through 39, Jesus and his disciples have been ministering, and the crowds are growing. He's about a year and a half into his public ministry now. Notoriety is traveling. Jesus is performing some phenomenal miracles. He's preaching insights that have people on the edge of their seats. He's teaching things about, you know, what was, what, what was once just religious. All of a sudden, it flowers open. They're like, oh, that's what God meant. And so he, he's just doing this stuff. He's, he's setting people free, casting out demons. I mean, legit. He, he's, he's, he's doing not just miracles. Miracles, not like, do you feel a little better? Are you encouraged? But I mean, some of the miracles described in the Bible are like eye-popping, right? Like people that are amputees, their arms growing out, and they walk away a whole person again. Leprosy is completely disappearing. I mean, pe- people that have been, had internal bleeding happening for, you know, for, for years and years, all of a sudden that's drying up. And they're, they're fully functional and healthy, healthy again. This is, this is crazy, wonderful stuff. However, in verse number 40, Jesus finishes, and his disciples finish this ministry campaign that they've been on, traveling through all these towns and villages, spreading the gospel, again, uh, demonstrating the power of God. And they're finally getting on a boat now to go back to their home base, which the Bible says is this place called Capernaum. Jesus, when he left there, he, he was already super famous there because all the things he was doing everywhere else, he did there first. In fact, Capernaum, although you may not have connected the dots, is where his disciples, at least three of them, Peter, Andrew, and Matthew, were all chosen from the shores of Capernaum. And so they were locals, right? And they knew that and pe- word got out and, and Jesus, Jesus is well-loved and well-respected in what is now the home base of his ministry. And all that leads us up to Luke chapter chapter 8, verse 40, it says, so it was when Jesus returns, listen to this, that the multitude welcomed him for they were all waiting for him. Here's truth number one in a kingdom mindset. Everyone is waiting for Jesus. 
Not just the people that love him. Not just the people that are excited to be in church and excited to get up and, you know, spend time with him in devotion every morning. Everybody's waiting for Jesus. Every single person. And I'm not talking about people that are way over there somewhere in another city or in another state or maybe in another country. Everybody's waiting for Jesus right here in our own hometowns, in our own little circles, people that we rub elbows with and bump, you know, bump into every single week and, you know, kind of just in a routine. Hey, John, you know, hey, hey, Jay, hey, what's going on? Hey, how you doing? And just keep on going. Everybody is waiting for Jesus. Christians, but non-Christians too. That your spouse is waiting for Jesus. What are you talking about? I'm, I, we're both Christians. Your spouse is waiting for God. She, they're believing God. He's believing God for things to happen in his life. Your children are waiting for Jesus, even though they don't always act like it, but they're waiting for Jesus. I'm telling you, your coworkers, your classmates, your coaches, people that you see at the grocery stores, everybody is waiting for Jesus, whether they realize it or not. This is exactly what they're waiting for. Now, let's be clear. We've kind of touched on this. They're not waiting for more religion. They're not waiting for another sermon. They're not waiting for, let me give you the three points to this and the, you know, the five points to something else over here. They're certainly not waiting for more rules and regulations that come with our condemnation and our guilt and manipulation. They're not waiting for any of that stuff. Every single one of them, by the way, including us, we're desperate. We're desperate for the God that created us to touch our lives. We're desperate for him to tell us from the inside to the outside how much that he loves us, that, that he hasn't given up on us, that he's got a plan for us. Because I can promise you nobody out there is telling us that, at least not to the proportion that we need to hear it. But we're desperate to hear that. We're desperate for him to step in and rescue us when we're pretty sure that this is it. This whole thing's going down the tube. We tried as hard as we could. We didn't make all the right decisions. And man, it's hanging by a thread. We're desperate for him to come in and prove that he's still the rescue, the hero, the action figure that comes through every single time. We, we need this from him. We need his healing. We need his assurance in, in, a, in a culture that is more and more conscious and more and more sensitive to viruses and disease and infections. And we need the assurance that the healing that God provides is real. And I could just go on and on and on, right? But the more the world spins out of control, and the Bible says as we get to the last days, we'll see that increase. The more this happens, listen to me, everybody is going to be more desperate and waiting for Jesus, even if they don't know it. And as Christians, we can't afford to keep them waiting. We've got to begin in our own little circles, in our own little homes, in our own connect groups, and we've got to begin, begin to give that. So for weeks, we've been trying to unpack this topic, and we've been trying to understand, what does the Bible say about witnessing? What, what is the Lord calling us to? We, we broke down some religious expectations that put all this unnecessary pressure on us, and we found out not everybody has to be the same, not everybody has to be bold and outspoken and confrontational, and, but God works again with our personalities and our temperaments, and He'll edge us out there without pressure, without manipulation. He wants to change and grow and mature us. And all we have to do is cooperate and he'll do what he promised he would do like he's doing it in other areas. We, again, we encouraged ourselves with the fact that there's no pressure on us to get anybody to believe anything. We're just supposed to share. We're witnesses. I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. So help me God. And I definitely need God's help. But if you ask me a question, well, what about all the starvation in the world? I, I, I don't know. I know I think about that too. I have no idea. Here's what I do know. We're, we're the witness. We can only tell what we know. We can only tell what we've experienced. We can only tell what the Bible says, and that's it. And, and then we also, we broke down what the gospel message is from John 3.16 so that it's so simple. Anybody can kind of carry that in their heart, and at any point, you can give a part or all of it just like that on a dime without any pressure. You don't have to be a theologian. So we've been studying all these things, but, but let me just tell you something right now. Information, Bible information, is not the goal. It's a part. It's really, really good. Bible information will make you smarter, but it won't make you better. In fact, Bible information can become dangerous because Bible information can actually make you worse or in a worse condition. The goal of the New Testament is spiritual formation or as Romans chapter 12 verse 2 puts it, transformation. 
comes from a Greek word that means to literally be changed from the inside out. To, to go from being more controlled and more influenced by our self-centered person on the inside, the one who wants to do what they want to do, when they want to do it, how they want to do it, and if I don't want to do it, then I'm going to find a good reason not to do it, and, I, and I'm just going to do something else. And that, that's our own selfish nature, right? But transformation comes and says, you don't have to be controlled by that all the time. That instead, you can overcome that, and transformation allows us to spiritually mature, so we can be the faith-filled, confident, at times necessary, disciplined person to be everything that God wants us to be. And so truth number one is that everybody's waiting for Jesus, but here's truth number two. This is important. The goal of witnessing is transformation of both the witnesser and the witnessee. See, see, we think we have to share our faith because other people can hear about Jesus and their life can be changed. Yes, time out. But part of that other people is so that our life can be changed for having shared. And this is really, really important for us to understand. Again, the Great Commission in Mark chapter 16 and Matthew 28, we've gone over this a number of times, is twofold. Preach the gospel and win the lost and make disciples. And we look at that and we say, yeah, but part of becoming a disciple, that lifelong journey of following Christ and becoming more mature and, and, and more and more of who he's really created us to be, no insecurity, no inhibitions, no looking longingly over at somebody who's so free and having a great time and thinking, I wish I could do that, but I can't because something inside of me just won't let me. I don't know why I'm like this. I don't know why I'm all tangled up and I don't know why I'm so shy. I don't know why I'm so, so this or so that, but we can become everything God's called us to be and live free. That's the goal of the New Testament. And that's what it means to become a disciple. But part of becoming a disciple is learning to share our faith, to become a witness. It's as much for us as it is for the people that we're sharing with. And see, we, we've kind of missed that part, but that's exactly what Pastor James, James is preaching about. Listen to this in James chapter 1, verse 21. He said, so put out of your life every evil thing and every kind of wrong, and then in gentleness accept God's teaching that is planted in your hearts, which can save you. Verse number 22, but do what God's teaching says. When you only listen and do nothing, you are fooling yourselves. You know, that word fooling is another interesting word because in the original language, it's actually an accounting term. And it means to miscalculate something and come up with a wrong conclusion. I don't know if you've ever done this before, but back in the day where, you know, checkbooks were balanced with paper to pen and a little tiny ledger, if you've ever made a mistake and you thought, woo, I got money, and all of a sudden you realize, oh, I don't. <laughs> yeah, that's what this is talking about. Thinking because you know something, because you came to church and you learned something, now that makes you better. No, 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 no. That, that gives you the information you need to let the Lord begin to work in your heart to bring the transformation. But here's an old saying that I'm sure you've heard before, change isn't change until you've changed. Change isn't change just because you think about change, just because you would like to be changed, just because you know the Lord wants to change and offers to change you, that's a great start. That opens up the possibility and lets faith begin to rise. But change isn't change until you've changed, and that's what the Lord really is trying to do for all of us. And so that's why we've, we've been challenging you step by step, starting way back in the secret place, and then moving into the gathering place and saying, come on, you, you got to just little by little, you got you to get in a secret place with God. You got to not just reading your Bible, checking boxes, but you got to open up to him. You got to know he's real and expect him to meet you there. And not every single time the same way, but you got to recognize there's times he steps in. He begins to deal with your heart and don't shy away from that. Lean into that and let the Lord begin to change you. We challenge you to start coming to church early. 
or earlier at least, and so many of you did, and we're so great, grateful of that, and engaging in the service. We've been encouraging you and challenging you to take the things, the needs that you have, and take advantage of what the Bible says when we call for the altar team to come up, and come and, and find an agreement in prayer. Receive what the Bible says that you can, even if it's not for you personally. You have someone you know, you love your, you know, your family member who's at home not feeling well, or your son, or your daughter, or your your spouse who's not walking with the Lord or your coworker, and you can come and represent somebody else. It's all over the New Testament. They did it. And Jesus ministered to that person so that the other person could receive a touch from the Lord. We're watching and, and we're encouraging. We're encouraging you to get your hands in the harvest. You say, well, I can't, you know, I can't go and I can't do. I know, but we can financially give where we can. We can't give to everything and we can't give everything we would like to give to everything. But we're learning to be sensitive to the Lord and say, Lord, I'll do what I can. The widow's might counted big with the Lord. Smallest gift in the whole offering that morning. So small that it's almost unnoticed. And yet Jesus noticed that one above everything else because the heart was to say, I just want to be involved. And part of that was we have to stop avoiding the topic of witnessing. I, I understand, man, all you introverts out there, I'm with you. But we have to stop avoiding this topic and just getting through a series and pretending it doesn't apply to us. And instead, we've got to open up a conversation with God. We've got to be just brutally honest. I don't like this. I don't want to do it. I'll do anything else. Well, almost anything else. Well, here's a list of things that I would rather do. But please don't make me do this. You've got to tell him I'm afraid. I feel clumsy. What if I get rejected? How, what am I going to do with that? And you got to begin to let him soften your heart and step by step begin to learn to do it. Again, you can, you can use some of these uh, mechanics and learn how to edge out there. It's perfectly legit to begin witnessing with insiders, other Christians, get in a connect group, spend a little time talking to other people about what you caught in the message, what the Lord's doing in your heart. It's uncomfortable. I'm telling you, not as many Christians talk about spiritual things as you might think. They just don't. I can't tell you how many households, husbands and wives who never talk about spiritual things. Come to church, sit side by side every Sunday, but never have a conversation about what the Lord's doing in each of their lives. That, that's your practice ground right there. You learn how to begin sharing your faith with somebody that you're, you're comfortable with and they know is going to have a grid for that. And then little by little, the Lord begins to encourage you. And the next thing you know, you're sitting across somebody and, uh, and you're able to share some things with them. And I get for some of you like, I know, but that's still super scary. I know, but most things are, right? When's the last time you did something and you look back and you say, I've grown in that area that you didn't look back to the first few steps and it was way out of your comfort zone. But, but you started stepping. Maybe you were forced to, but you started stepping. Maybe it was a brand new job. Maybe you had to relocate and move and you didn't like it. You did it kicking and screaming. But as you did it, you'll carve new territory. We have to begin to lean out and trust the Lord. But as we do, then, then the Lord begins to meet us there. Let me tell you a little story one time that happened to me. Again, I, I'm an introvert, even though you wouldn't think so, because I'm standing up here talking to a group of people right now, but, I, but I'm an introvert, right? And it doesn't mean that I'm ashamed to witness for the Lord, but in almost every setting, familiar and brand new settings, I tend to listen first. I'm listening, I'm thinking, I'm trying to assess and understand before I just start talking, right? So I'm, I'm not the first one to talk, uh, e even in my own meetings. I'm not the first one to talk if I don't have to. And so I'm at a Starbucks one morning, and I'm doing my devotions there. And, and at that particular season of my life, that was kind of my habit. I would get up and take one of the kids to school, and, and I would sit there doing devotions every morning. And, and I noticed this one guy would come in. I mean, I noticed a bunch of people. This one guy would come in every single morning, same time, get his coffee, and walk out the door. And he just seemed like one of those guys that, you know, were, were on it, man. He's like a top-shelf guy, and he's put together, and he's very articulate, and he's very precise about what he wants, and, but very gracious and he'd just walk out. Well, on this one particular morning, I'm doing my devotions and happen to notice this same guy walks to the counter and he picks up his coffee and, you know, out of my peripheral, I just assume he's going to walk out the door like he does every morning, but he comes over to my table and he said, excuse me, I don't mean to bother you, but I see you in here reading your Bible all the time. And he said, I wondered, could I just talk to you for a few minutes? And I thought, well, yeah, 
So I said, yeah, sure, pull up a chair. And we talked for about 30 minutes. And he said, I, I never do this. But he said, I'm just kind of in a desperate situation. He said, I got laid off my job. And he said, I am in a panic about the, fam- the future of our family. He said, I told my wife and it created such stress. He said, my wife and I are kind of back and forth. We're fighting right now. And he said, honestly, I'm kind of lost. I'm not even expecting you to give me some answers. But as I was getting the, the coffee, waiting for my, my order, I thought, you know what? I should just at least go talk to him. And so we talked for about 30 minutes. And before he left, uh, I asked if I could pray with him. And he said, yeah. So very discreetly, we bowed our head right there in Starbucks. And I said a short, but a very authentic prayer. And, uh, and as he got up from the table, he was brushing tears away from his eyes. I invited him to church. I handed him one of my cards and said, if you need anything else, just let me know. And he walked out the door. Now listen to me. I never saw him again after that. I don't know if he moved. I don't know if he got a different job. I don't know if he just felt so awkward he didn't want to come back to the same Starbucks that he thought I was going to be at. I don't know. But here's what I do know. He walked out and I thought, you know what? Everybody, everybody is waiting for Jesus. Everybody has needs. Everybody's desperate. And, and I'm so happy that the Holy Spirit orchestrated that on, on that particular occasion and it worked. Well, everybody's waiting for Jesus uh, Hold that thought with me and go with me then to Luke chapter 15. And as you get there, let me give you some background so you can kind of understand. We're about a year later from Luke chapter 8. And Jesus has once again left Capernaum. And this time he's on his way to Jerusalem. um, Where he's going to spend his final week before he's crucified. So this is not the Passion Week, the final week, but it's leading up to the final week. Now, the fastest route through, through, uh, to Jerusalem from Capernaum would have been right through the, 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 place, uh, the, the city of Samaria. But Jews and, 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 uh, and Samaritans had a real difficult relationship. And on this occasion, um, one, of the, one of the commentaries said that Jesus and his disciples were refused passage. No, we're not going to let you go through, through Samaria. And so instead, they're traveling through this rough desert part of the country named Perea. Uh, You won't find that in every translation. In a lot of translations, they just refer to it, the land beyond Jordan. And this took them two to three months because they were going from town to town over very rough and rugged terrain. They were going from village to village. And when they got there, they would stop. They would preach. They would have some time to minister to people. They would stay for a few days and answer questions and make sure that people were doing well. And then they would move on to the next town. So uh, as they're preaching, they're teaching. Again, Jesus is performing miracles. He's delivering people. He's encouraging them, putting families and, and relationships back together. And he's leaving them. They're feeling great. And it was in one of those places that we find in Luke chapter 15. And here's what it says. It says, then they they get to this place. We don't know where. Then all the tax collectors and sinners drew near to him to hear him. So I want you to know he walks in and his reputation is preceding him. And as soon as he walks into town, here comes all the unreligious people. Not the irreligious people. Those are different. Those are people that are angry with and, you know, accusatory and scoffing at, at, at the gospel. That's not these people. These are people that, they're just not churchy people. There's not like super Christian people, right? But he said, here comes all the unreligious people and they all drew near to hear him. Look at verse two. And the Pharisees and the scribes, who by the way, were the religious people, were the leaders of the religious people, which means they were the examples to the religious people. They were the instructors for the religious people. They were the coaches and the mentors. And hey, this is how we do it. This is how we live for God. These people, the religious leaders and the Pharisees and scribes complained saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And so he spoke this parable to them saying, now, Before we read on, let let me just help you to understand again. We don't know whether they said this loud enough for Jesus to hear or Jesus perceived their thoughts. We're not sure. Both happened throughout the Gospels. We're not told which one is here. But what what we do know is that Jesus knew that they didn't approve. And that's important because, again, these are religious people. Let's just kind of trade places with them for a minute. These are Christians. Not saying they were, they're not, but they were religious people, God-fearing, God-partnered people, but they kind of had this 
you know, sour taste in their mouth for people that weren't churchy. Oh, yeah, they don't serve God. We don't hang around with them. Yeah, no, we, we, don't, we, we don't spend time with them. They don't, they, they're not church. They, they're, they don't, they're not Christians. They don't serve God. And they had this, this kind of distaste in their mouth for them. And here Jesus is, and the Bible says, and so he spoke this parable to them. Actually, he spoke three parables to them in rapid fire succession, only given a short pause in the middle for them to digest and kind of wrap their head and their heart around what he was saying and then put their eyes back up to where he was so he could give them another one. And, and I want you to remember now, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to be crucified to be the redemption for all of mankind. I, I'm not saying the Bible connects that dot, but that's gotta be in there somewhere because this is the only time recorded in any of the gospels that Jesus fires off three parables like this all in a row that all have the same truth. It's almost like Jesus either perceives their thoughts or he hears them and he says, okay, you know what? We've just gotta settle this right now. We're just going to get this mindset shifted over because we shouldn't be feeling that way. And so verses 3 through 7, he talks about the lost sheep and how much God loves them. And then Jesus pauses to kind of watch their reaction and say, okay, you're still with me, right? And then he goes right into verses 8 through 10, talking about the lost coin and how the, the little widow woman just tore up her house looking for it. It was so valuable. It was so precious to her. And then he stops. Okay, you're still listening. You're still with me, right? And then he hits the grand slam home run with the product son. How somebody could be so disrespectful and bring such a smudge on the family name and yet the father to welcome that son back in with such loving and open arms as if to say, there's nothing that you can do that would ever make me stop loving you and stop accepting you. He just hits him with all three of these. Now, we're not cold-hearted religious people, right? That was a good time to respond, right? <laughs> We love people, right? Okay, so we don't have to go through all three. And just so that we can make a point here, I'm just going to read one quick one. We're going to look at the parable of the lost sheep, point out a couple little things, and then I'm going to give you a truth, and we're going to move to Luke 19. Luke 15, listen to this. I'm in verse 4. And a man has a hundred sheep. I'm sorry, if a man has a hundred sheep, and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Stop. We know the man is to, that he's, he's giving in a, in a picture, in an allegory, in a metaphor, is talking about God because Psalm 24 says that God owns the whole earth and everything and everybody in it. However, the Bible also teaches that even though God can love and interact with a Christian who's been born into God's family, he can love interact, interact with them as their father, God doesn't have that relationship with the rest of his creation. Now that's their choice, right? They can be in his family and it allows God to lean in and give all the attention that a parent could freely give to their child. But not everybody has done that and so God is, is in a creator-creation relationship but I want you to know he loves his creation. In fact, John 3.16 says he so, so loved the whole world. That that's why he sent Jesus to rescue them. So it says if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what does he do? That's a legitimate question. You can almost feel the dramatic pause, right? It's like, what does he do? Jesus is looking around like. And then he goes on. He says, won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost till he finds it? When you say go to search, what, what, is, what do you mean by that? You mean he's like 100 yards away in a bush somewhere? Well, apparently, he had to make sure the other 99 were secured and were going to be okay because he went and he went wherever it took. Probably, he went so far you couldn't hear the sheep anymore. Probably, he went so far you couldn't hear the other shepherds clanging around the camp. Probably, he went so far where the green pastures and the cool still waters were no longer there. Probably he went so far where you could hear at nighttime the howling of the wolves because that little sheep was in trouble. He was so lost, he didn't even know how to start finding his way back. But he went wherever it took and he searched until he could find the lost one. And then it goes on and says, and when he has found it, he will 
joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. In other words, he didn't just hand him a track and say, hey, good to know you. But he he loved him so much, he stayed with him until he could pick him up. And then he put him on his shoulders and he literally helped be part of the transportation to get him back to where he needed to be. And when he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me because I found my lost sheep. Now, verse seven is a really key hinge. And I want you to pay attention to this. In the same way, say that. In the same way, not in a different way, not even in a similar way. In the same way, There is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. Here's the big question though, right? How do they repent and return? Someone had to go find them. Someone had to go out of their way, out of their comfort zone, you know, where the Christian language isn't common anymore. You know, where the bless me club doesn't provide the the nice tall grass and the the stopping places and, you know, those places. You know, the place where the voice of the shepherd is not heard anymore. Whatever it takes, someone had to go and find them. And I'll tell you why it was imperative. Because God loves those lost sheep and everybody is waiting for Jesus. Here's truth number three to help our mindset. God actually looks for lost people. And so we should do. We should pay attention to that. We shouldn't just pay attention, you know, to the people that are in church and making sure they're doing well. That's a big part of it. That's part of our family. But we should be asking the Lord, Lord, give us a heart. Now, not every single lost person or we we couldn't do anything else for the kingdom. If every single lost person, you know, we're we're just trying to round up a whole nother flock of sheep. That's not what the Lord's called any of us to do. But he's called us to be sensitive. And when the Holy Spirit begins to nudge you, and you have the opportunity in some far away deserted place, you have the opportunity to help a lost sheep find its way back, then this would be really important. All right, I'm going to tell on myself a little bit, so you prom- have to promise me that you won't judge me in this story, okay? I've already told you I'm an introvert, and uh, I, I, I don't really start a lot of conversations, just not my thing. Um, I don't run away from him, but I, but I usually don't start him. And, and I'll be honest enough to say, I, I know where the, where the exit points are in a lot of these conversations. Some of it is I know them intuitively, others I know defensively, but I know how to find exit points. <clears throat> So this is some years ago back, some years ago, uh, I was invited to be a speaker at some meetings that were happening on the West Coast, and it was a Sunday afternoon flight. I preached in the morning, multiple services. I, I got on a plane. I was tired. I was kind of, de- you know, decompressing, and I just was looking forward to a little bit of light reading and then probably closing my eyes and catching a nap on a five-hour flight before I got there and had to get to a hotel and go right into the, to the first meeting. And so I sat down on the plane, and as soon as I sat down, the guy sitting next to me in the middle seat started chatting. And I thought, oh, deliver me, Lord, deliver me. You know your servant's been working for you all morning. I need that cool water. I need that green grass. Just lay me down and restore my soul. And he just kept talking and talking and talking. And so, you know, I'm being cordial and I'm being gracious, but I got to tell you, my heart's not in it. On the inside, man, I'm just looking for the exit quick. And I knew I'd found it when early in the conversation, he asked me this question. He said, so what do you do for a living? Now, selfish Gil loves that question. Because you you can't imagine how fast you can end a conversation with those few little words, I'm a pastor. Done. (laughs) Oh, that's really nice. Hey, listen, I I really got to make a call here. I'm sure you do. (laughs) Selfish Gil loves that question. And so when he said, what do you do for a living? I'm like, thank you, Jesus, you know? And I'm like, well, actually, I'm a pastor. Only this time, instead of leaning out, he leaned in. And he said, you know what? I haven't done this in years. He said, uh, actually, I got really hurt in the church. And he said, I'm, I'm, he said I, don't, I don't even know if I'd call myself a Christian, to be honest with you. He said, I grew up in church, but I got really, really hurt, and I walked away decades ago. And he said, I don't think I've had a conversation with very many Christians at all, certainly not about uh, spiritual things, and I've never had a conversation with a pastor he said, but 
my daughter's going through a really messy divorce. And he said, honestly, it's breaking my wife and I's heart. We love our son-in-law. We love that family. And we're torn up about it. He said, I don't, I don't know who else to talk to. And he said, I kind of think it might be providential that we're sitting next to each other. And so for the whole five-hour flight, we talked. And as the flight was landing, uh, I led that man in a prayer to rededicate his life to the Lord. And I gave him my card as we're getting off the flight. And I said, hey, listen, uh, if you need anything else, don't, don't hesitate. Give me a call. And, and I, I, quite frankly, I didn't expect to hear from him again. But a, a couple weeks later, I got an email from him. Hey, this is your Australian business buddy, you know, and your flight buddy. And, and, uh, and he said, got some good news for you. He said, I went home and I shared with my wife what happened. And he said, and we prayed together and we recommitted our life to the Lord. And we started praying for our son-in-law and our daughter and our son-in-law completely turned his heart around. And he and my daughter are in, they're in counseling and he said, they're doing good. They're going to work it out. Everything's fine. He said, and my whole family for the last three weeks, we've been back in church. And he said, we're, we're going to plug back in. And, and I thought, you know what, Lord, everybody's waiting for Jesus. And here's the vulnerable part. If it would have been up to me, I would have let him wait. It wasn't convenient for me. It wasn't comfortable for me. I would just let him wait. But I'm so grateful that the Holy Spirit loves people enough to have other plans. And he completely rerouted that. In fact, as I was thinking about this story, I remembered a, a, a pretty, pretty sobering scripture in Proverbs. Listen to Proverbs 24, 11. It says, deliver those who are drawn towards death and hold back those stumbling towards the slaughter. You know some of these people, right? Just making bad choices and just drifting farther and farther away. And the more you try to talk, they're justifying themselves. They're rationalizing themselves, but they're moving the wrong direction. You know it. They might even know it deep in their heart, and yet they continue to go. But listen to verse number 12. If you say, surely we didn't know this. Like, I, I didn't know. I didn't know that was, I was that serious. I didn't know what was really going on. He says, does not he who weigh the hearts consider it? You don't think God's listening? You don't think God's watching the whole thing? And he says, and he who keeps your soul, does he not know it? Come on. We do know. We know when, when we, we get to that angst and we, we want to say something, but we chicken out or we want to say something, but it's not worth the messy conversation or we just don't want to disturb anything, man. Just, you know, peace and serenity is the highest priority, right? Just don't rattle the cage. It's like that 11th commandment, thou shalt be nice. And that, can, and that cancels out all the other 10, right? doesn't matter what's going on with the other 10. All that I'm required to do is just be super nice all the time. And, and we get hung up on this stuff, and it goes on and says, but you don't think God knows that? You don't think he's looking at what's happening in the heart? You don't think he looks, he's looking at what's happening with that other person? And it says, and will he not render to each man according to his deeds? Now, listen, I'm not talking about this is a lose your salvation. I'm not talking about God comes in and zaps you and destroys your life. None of that stuff. I'm just saying it's sobering. It's sobering. Today is Palm Sunday, and so we're going to get to Luke 19 right now. And it's the beginning of, we know, as Passion Week. But when we think about that, we don't think about stirring the, re-stirring the passions up in ourselves. We think about, no, that was a passionate time for Christ. Remember the movie, The Passion of Christ? And we kind of point to things that are out there. But it's supposed to be like this initiation for us to get ready for next Sunday, which is the crowning jewel of the Christian faith where Jesus Christ actually finished the plan of redemption and rose from the dead and said, I get it. I've conquered everything, and now I'm going to bring that victory into your life so there's nothing you face that you can't overcome with his power. And so we're supposed to be generating this, but uh, this is one of those times uh, in that all, in all four Gospels talk about this particular event. All four of them record it, have different things to add. But it's when the whole city of Jerusalem, who historically was waiting for their Messiah, right? It was one of the primary themes in the Jewish upbringing. The Messiah is going to come. The Messiah is going to come. For a moment, they caught a glimpse of Jesus as their Savior, and they welcomed him in this incredible praise and elation. So we're going to start in Luke chapter 19, 
verse 37, it says, Then, as he, this is Jesus, was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives. Again, remember, Jesus has been traveling with, starting with his, with his disciples. He's been traveling from village to village on this two to three month tour, going through uh, the, the land beyond Jordan, and he's ministering and he's healing. And as he's doing that, Passover is approaching. And as he's, as, he's, as he's traveling through these villages and towns, and again, he's preaching and he's teaching and he's healing and he's delivering and people are just being excited. And these were Jewish influenced people. Many of them were going to travel to the Passover. So as Jesus would move from one town to the next town, his entourage was growing. People were beginning to travel with him. And so he, he's got quite, it's not just him and the 12 anymore. He's got a really large group of people that are following him. In fact, the scriptures tell us, it says, as he was drawing the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples, uh, the whole multitude of disciples were, were gathered with him. And this word multitude comes from a Greek word it's used 25 times in the New Testament. It always describes a mega, humongous gigantic crowd, sometimes in the thousands of people, gigantic crowd. So this is who's traveling around, around Jesus at this point. And it said, they began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice, notice, for all the mighty works they had seen. So they've been traveling to every town. Jesus don't disappoint. I mean, the presence, the power of God's there. He's leaving healing and deliverance and preaching, you know, insights of truth. And people's lives are, are wow, we, we can see that we're being picked up. And Jesus moves on and the crowd grows. And by the time they get there and they're coming over the hill of the Mount of Olives and they're headed down to Jerusalem, they can see the city. That's it. They erupt in this praise because of all the mighty works they had seen. Verse three, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, hold on to Luke 19. You don't have to turn there with me, but we're gonna add a little bit of insight from Matthew's gospel. Matthew's telling the same story and in chapter 21. This is what he says, and a very great multitude, same description. We, we don't know how many. It could be thousands of people, but we know it's gigantic. It's huge. They spread their clothes on the, on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And then the multitude who went before him and those who followed him. So picture Jesus in the middle of this crowd. It says that they begin to cry out saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now, let me give you two quick notes so you can know what the Jewish people heard. When they heard the word Hosanna, Hosanna, it literally started out as a prayer. Hosanna initiated in the Jewish culture as a prayer that literally means, save us, we pray, we pray. Or it means, please come and save us now. But as time went on, it was more used more commonly, not as a prayer, but as a declaration, as an utterance of praise and a declaration of salvation, like not save me, but he's saving me. He's rescuing me. He's doing what he promised. And then when you add that to the phrase that they were saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, that's taken directly from Psalm 118 verse 26. It was a messianic psalm and a messianic phrase that every time a Jewish person heard it, they knew you were talking about their Messiah that was coming. So when you put these together, if you were part of that crowd, and you, were, you had a Jewish heritage, when they started celebrating, saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, declaring their victorious salvation, and they attached it to this messianic phrase, they were declaring that Jesus was, the, was their Messiah. Not we're waiting for him, this is the guy right here. He's the Messiah. And remember, this was a huge crowd. And you have to understand and get that picture because then you'll understand why Matthew goes on in verse 10 and says, and when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved. The whole city was, was, was in an uproar. In fact, that word move literally means to be shaken or to tremble or to become agitated. It's the word they would use if an earthquake happened. I mean, the, if you were in your kitchen preparing you know, for the Passover week for your relatives to arrive, all of a sudden the city would begin to rumble and all of a sudden you'd hear the shaking and you're like, what is going on? Because there were thousands of people that were coming in and verse 11 said, so the multitudes rushed and the multitude said, uh, I'm sorry, uh, 
Uh, they, they, they were all moved or they were all agitated saying, who is this? And so the multitudes traveling with Jesus said, this is Jesus, notice, the prophet from Nazareth. So they knew something was going on. And there by their verbiage, by their intentional use of phrases, they're declaring him as the Messiah. But when asked directly, no, no, this is the prophet from Nazareth. And they could go on and tell stories, incredible things that he's done. And you have to understand that because then when we come back to Luke chapter 19, now they're in the city in Matthew 21, but back to Luke 19, remember, we're still on the Mount of Olives. We're on the descent down, but you'll understand why what happened next, it said, and some Some of the Pharisees called to Jesus from the crowd and said, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Because those disciples, the huge mega uh, uh, crowd was calling him the Messiah, saying this is the Messiah. He's come to save us. He's the Messiah. And they said, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. There's so much we could talk about there, but let me just kind of give you the, the real broad uh, understanding, and that is that this was such a game-changing moment in the history of mankind, such a hinge pin in the kingdom of God, especially where the people of Israel concerned, but really where the whole world was concerned, because Jesus was stepping in to give his life as the redemption. And Jesus was saying, this is such a historic moment, it has to be acknowledged. It has to be acknowledged. It can't just go under the radar. This has to be acknowledged. And yet, I want you to understand this. Now, now think about it, okay? This, this humongous crowd, Jesus is in the middle, and they're like, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and palm branches and, and robes, and there's lots of chanting and lots of you know, whistles and lots of hoorays and lots of claps, and, and the whole city's being shaken, and they're on their way down, and yet I want you to notice with all the celebration going on, Luke chapter 19, verse 41 says, now as he, Jesus, drew near, he saw the city and he wept. What? Wouldn't, wouldn't he have like an ear-to-ear smile on his face? Wouldn't he be giggling? Wouldn't he be knowing, man, this is it. They're finally getting it. They understand. But it says he wept. In fact, this is not the first time that he wept. When he was on that two to three month tour and he was ministering in different villages in Luke chapter 13, it says another time Jesus was thinking about where he was going and what he was doing and the people that he was going to be delivering. And the Bible says in verse 34 of Luke 13 that Jesus prays this prayer, but it's a lament. It's a very sad, grieving prayer. And here's what he prays. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. Let me just just put that into context so you can understand. Jesus like, how many times did I reach out How many times did you feel me tug you in the heart? How many times did you in the middle of a worship service and you could tell, man, tears were welling up and it was right there and you sucked it all back down inside? How many times did you hear me come to you and say, listen to me, let me help you. Don't don't do that. Just don't do that. And you pushed me aside and you kept going. See, this is the same thing he's saying to them. And listen to the next verse. The result is he said, see, or open your eyes now. Your house is left to desolate. And assuredly, I say to you that you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, when you read that, if you're just kind of reading, you're like, well, that's great news because in Luke 19, that's exactly what they're chanting. I mean, the whole huge mega crowd is going crazy. Yeah, blessed is he who comes in. Hosanna, Hosanna. This is the Messiah. This is the Messiah. But again, listen to what Jesus is saying in Luke 19. We're back in verse 41. Now again, as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it. And this is what he was saying. This is really important. He was saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this, your day, the things that make for you peace, other translations say, if you'd really understood the things that would establish peace in your life. And that peace is the word uh, shalom. It's not talking about just a serenity and a calmness. It's talking about wholeness. The kind of peace because you look around and everything in your life is the way it's supposed to be. I mean, you're moving forward, but man, everything's right. 
And, and you just feel a confidence and a peace and a, a settledness about it. He said, if you, if you would have really paid attention and if you only knew, he said, especially in this particular day, what, what brings you peace? He said, but now they're hidden from your eyes. What? Well, what was hiding them? You would think their eyes were open, right? Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the king, you know, and all the miracles they saw. You, you'd think their eyes were wide open, but he said, but they're hidden from you. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment and around you, will surround you and close in on every side, and will level you and your children within you to the ground. They will not leave one stone upon another. And listen to this, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now, in 70 AD, Jerusalem was actually destroyed by the Romans and it happened exactly like Jesus said. But listen, here's Jesus is saying, didn't have to happen. History could have gone a whole different way. But it did happen because they didn't know the time of their visitation. In fact, this is so important that we really get this down. Let me just read a couple of verses in a different translation because I really want it to soak in. This, this is the Christian Jewish Bible. It says, when Yeshua had come closer and could see the city, he wept over it, saying, if you only knew today what is needed for real shalom. But for now, it's hidden from your sight. I'm skipping down to verse 44. He said, and all because you did not recognize your opportunity when God offered it. Now, if you take the word know, known, knew, recognize in both those translations, they, they all are using the same word. And, and it's really a Jewish word, which I want to be careful because we have some kids in the room, but it's a Jewish word that was used to express the intimacy between a husband and a wife. As in, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, the Bible says, and Adam knew Eve, and she conceived and had a son. So it's talking about this intimate, very personal, very vulnerable exchange between these two people. Only here it's used as a metaphor, and it's talking about the fact that there was an intimate, fam uh, an intimate familiarity with someone or something because of time spent and because of the deep and intimate personal interaction. In other words, Jesus is saying, listen to me, I, I know that everybody is in a tither and they're so excited about what's going on. They're, Woo! You know, there's clapping and singing and Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're taking their coats and they're cutting palm branches. And this is a giant, wonderful parade. But Jesus is crying because he knows you, you don't really mean it. You're caught up in the excitement. You're caught up in the religious understanding that one day God could deliver you. But you don't understand today's your day. This is your visitation. I'm standing right here. And he says, and you don't even see it and accept it. And Jesus was heartbroken because of that. In fact, we, find, we know that he's right because in less than a week, many of these same people that were, Hosanna, 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 would shift because of the cultural pressure. And cultural opinion would begin to change and they would change right along with it. And they, by the end of the week, some of these same people were not crying Hosanna. They were saying crucify him. Now, let me wrap it up here. Here's where it becomes relevant for us. Most of us have areas of our life where at least in our heart we're saying, you know what? One day, I'm just believing that God's going to heal me. One day, I'm just, gonna, I'm just believing that God's going to help to put our marriage the way it's supposed to be. One day, I'm just believing that God's going to do something and, and help us to financially stabilize and we'll actually start seeing the blessing and the increase. One day, I'm going to see my son. One day, I'm going to see my daughter come back to Jesus. One day, that family member, that best friend, one, one day, I believe that, that I'm going to see them. And it's a one day, one day, one day, one day. But listen to me, what if today's your day? What if during the worship time, when the Holy Spirit was speaking, and you could hear his heart, what if today's your day? But we're so caught up in just the music, and we're so caught up in, ju in just the fun, and we're so caught up in just the clapping and the warm, fuzzy emotion, that when God really begins to deal with us, we don't recognize the day of our visitation. And, and this is what the whole Bible's built on. In fact, if we could begin to look and we could realize that, you know, just showing up in church is a wonderful thing, but that's only the very first step. 
It's a step to come to say, I'm not just here. I'm here to be used by the Lord, but I'm also to be changed by the Lord. And Lord, I want to recognize today could be my one day. Maybe I bring somebody with me. Maybe, you know, I finally, my husband, my wife, my, my son, my daughter, my family member, I invited them. Oh, so scary, but I did it anyway. And, and they said, yeah, sure, I'll come. And you're like, what in the world? And they finally came. What if today's their day? What, what if they raise their hand and they accept the Lord Jesus Christ? Or they walk up here and receive prayer and God begins to soften their heart and they're well on their way to experience life to the full. In fact, let me just broaden it out and help you to understand what I believe the Lord is saying to our church. What if we as a church, what if we came to, to Sunday every single Sunday and we knew in our heart today is somebody's one day? It's important that I'm here. I don't come straggling in late. I don't come in tired and exhausted. I come in to say, even if I don't feel like praising the Lord, I get to offer a sacrifice of praise because that same God that blessed me last week is the same God that will bless me next week, even if I didn't get the blessing this week. And so I come with a sacrifice of praise. What if we decided that we can't afford just to be lethargic anymore? We can't afford just to say, ah, yeah, I'm not really into that. I just don't think I'm going to participate. What if we decided that part of people's one day is us showing up in faith and believing that God's going to do what he said he would do? Let me tell you what would happen if we begin to do that, then the power and the presence of God would increase And lots more people, starting with you, would have a lot more one days. This is the Bible principle. Did you know there was times that Jesus couldn't do what he wanted to do because people wouldn't believe, people wouldn't recognize what he was doing, and they were kind of like, eh, you know, how much longer do we have to be in church, and didn't recognize it, and so they didn't get there one day. There were times the Apostle Paul, in multiple books, he wrote, I I really have some things that I want to share with you. I really have some things that I know that God wants to do, but I can't. You don't have a one-day mentality. You're not thinking about that right now. And so I have to wait until this gets ready for you. Here's truth number four that's really, really important. We have to recognize that God is at work, and we have to step in. Now, here's my last challenge for you. Okay, and this won't take me very long if, you, if you'll stay with me. What if we as a church made a decision, Lord, you have to make us become who you want us to be, but we're gonna start this week and we're gonna start recognizing that next Sunday's a one day for somebody. What if we said, help us, Lord, and we just listened to the Lord, and on Easter Sunday, we, we just invited people. We just handed them something. Hey, you might want to come to church. And we prayed, and we said, Lord, you know, help, help us. to. We, we want to be used in this. What if we began stepping into it? In fact, let me say it this way. What if we didn't just celebrate the resurrection of Jesus? What if we actually stepped in and participated in the resurrection of Jesus. Here's the last scripture I told you I was going to read, and I promise it is, and it won't take us long. Romans chapter 8, verse 11. This is a powerful scripture. Listen, I quote it in my prayer time so often. It says, The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead. You remember that spirit, right? Dead as a doornail. Three days later, he sits up, and then he gets up. And then he gets on the road, and for the next 30 days, the Bible says, he is witnessing, he's sharing people, he's showing himself, saying, I'm telling you, I did it. God did what he promised, I'm back from the dead, and we're in a whole new ball game here. What if that same Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead, listen, it said, he lives in you. Well, that's something to let sink in. Not a different spirit. Not kind of, you know, a warm, fuzzy feeling that is the result somewhere down a very long 2,000-year-old line. What if the same exact Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead really does live in you because he does? And just as God raised Christ from the dead, listen, he will give life to your mortal bodies by this same spirit living within you. Now, we know that's true eternally. One day he's going to do that, but that's not really what it's talking about in this passage. 
When it says give life, it's from this compound Greek word, and it means to refresh, it means to revitalize, to rejuvenate, and it's talking about our, our particular, the particular part of our life that is subject to keep sliding back. In fact, that's what that mortal body means. That particular phrase means it's the part of you that's the fleshly part of you. It's not the part of you that can get all charged up at church. It's like, yeah, man, God's going to do it. Okay, that's it. I'm in. I'm in. But by the time you get to lunch, there's another part of you that's like, ah, this is going to be really messy. This is going to be really awkward. This is going to take a lot of work. I mean, don't you think you have other things that are priority right now? Let's not throw it away. Let's put it back here for now, okay? But we didn't recognize, yeah, but that's what God was talking about to me today. This is my visitation. And he's, the Holy Spirit said the same spirit that raised Jesus when Jesus was completely dead, but the same spirit that infused him with the freshness, the rejuvenation, the revitalization of life and caused Jesus to sit up and get going and finish off what he needed to do here before he ascended. Yeah, that same spirit that when you don't feel like you've got it in you, that same spirit lives in you and he's waiting to infuse you with your one day. What if, what if we stopped running away from this and we opened up and said, okay, this is not my thing, but come on, God. If, if you energize me, if you give me the courage, if you help me just to step out, if you set this thing up for me, tee it up so I can just, you know, swing with all I got, then, then help me and I'll do this. This is what the Bible's talking about. If we begin to participate in this resurrected life of Jesus, I know this is a dead area. I know this is an area that you're, you, you know, you just rather run away from. But what if we didn't? What if we opened up when the Holy Spirit began to speak to us and we said, okay, then change me. Make me somebody that I can't be on my own. I don't even want to be. What if we did that and all of a sudden we would experience one days, not only in our life, but we'd be part of so many other people's one day. God's moving in our church. We're not just coming together and being inspired by the word of God. We're becoming disciples. We're growing. And I'm anticipating God's going to open our womb Help us to be part of this birthing process. And there's lots of people that are waiting for Jesus right in your life. And the Lord's just going to say, go ahead, invite him. Go ahead, just whisper. They're gonna, some of them are going to come to you like the people that came to me. And, and you know, inside you're going to be like, oh. But outside you're like, sure, yeah, pull up a chair. Okay, Lord, help me. And God's going to give people their one days. Here's how we're going to finish today's service. You all received one of those communion cups as you walked in. And normally we would have done that during worship. But I, I really wanted an opportunity for us to seal some things with the Holy Spirit today. I know that the Lord's spoken to you during service. Whether it happened in worship or somewhere in the study. And I know that the Lord, you've been hearing from the Lord. He's visited you in your heart. And I want you to take that little communion today and as worship begin, begins to, to swell again, then we're, we're going to fill the house up with worship. Um, the altar team's going to come back up here for some of you that missed your opportunity before, but you want to come up now. Or maybe you came up with, for you before, but when you want to come for somebody else now. But I want you to take that little communion cup and right where you are, that becomes your altar today. Whether it's personal or husbands and wives, I would encourage you, do it together. If you have some other people in your family, circle up as a family as best you can in a straight pew and, and do it together. But listen to me, ask the Lord to say, Lord, help us this year to participate in the resurrection. Help us not just to celebrate and then go and, you know, have a nice meal, but help us to participate that Jesus is changing our life, that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead can also change me. Can, can quicken that dead part of me, that reluctant, that afraid part of me, can make it whole and make it new again. And as we begin communion, I'm, I'm going to pray for you this morning. First, every head bowed and every eye closed. If you're here this morning and you've never accepted the Lord Jesus Christ, or you've, it's been a long time and you're like my Australian plain buddy, and uh, you, you want to rededicate your life to the Lord, every head bowed, every eye closed, just put your hand up in the air. That's a decision between you and the Lord. Just between you and the Lord. Yep, I see the hand. Anybody else? In the balcony, anybody in the balcony? Okay, hands down. Different question now. How many of you would raise your hand and would say, Pastor, I don't want to miss my day of visitation. I want the Lord to do something, even if he has to push me out of my comfort zone. I want the Holy Spirit 
to infuse me with that resurrection power. And I want it to start like this week and keep going. How many of you would raise your hand between you and the Lord? Now it's not for me. Between you and the Lord. Yep, yep. About half the congregation. Yep. I'm just going to believe there's some, uh, some of you that are more introverted that didn't raise your hand, but you're still wrestling with that. Well, let me pray for you today. And then as soon as we do, you're dismissed to receive that communion together. The little wafer you're about to eat represents the fact that Jesus' body was, was whipped and it was broken so that you could receive healing. It's like this kingdom health package we have. And if you have brokenness in any area of your life, physically, emotionally, relationally, mentally, all those are covered, then you need to be taking that wafer and saying, Lord, you did this for me and I'm asking that the Holy Spirit would bring me my one day in this area. And of course, the little cup of juice is the blood that signed the contract, signed the covenant so that we know that we know that we know that God still means it, that God will still do it for us. He's faithful because he signed a contract. He signed a covenant with us and he's always faithful to his word. So Holy Spirit, as we receive communion together today, we're asking you in the name of Jesus not to let this be just another week in church, but to let this be the new beginning of a series of one days for us personally, but also days that we can be involved. Speak to our heart right now, Holy Spirit. Encourage conversations between husband and wife, between family members, between friends. Encourage those, Lord, and seal them today in a miracle in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for more messages. If you like what you're hearing, share it with your friends. For more content from Lakeshore and information on services, check us out at lakeshorecf.com.